chapter 13. We've been now for weeks here in this chapter, chapter 13. It's the it's uh, the chapter in the book of Revelation that reveals some things to us about the Antichrist. And so we're, we're looking at that. There's actually uh, in Revelation chapter 13 two beasts that are mentioned here. Um, and these are world leaders that are going to rise, um, and they're probably alive now somewhere. Um, these two beasts in Revelation chapter 13, the first one that's described that we've read about is a political military leader, and the second one is a religious leader. Um, he's mentioned in verse number 11, another beast that is described there. And he's, the second beast is called a false prophet, um, but he supports and magnifies the, um, the prestige of the first beast and, um, and gets the world to worship the first beast. Uh, but the first one is a political military leader who will be in control of much of the world um, and will take control around the time of the rapture, around the time of our departure. This is a man um, who, runs, who will run a kingdom that will control the whole world. It will be... Um, wave an back there. Move it around. Okay, that's better. Better? Lower. Okay, sorry about that. Sorry about all the racket and the static. Um, but anyway, so let's read these verses. And uh, we uh, last week we compared what we read in Revelation chapter... 13 to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. And we've said it before, by now you should know that the Daniel and Revelation go together, and in particular, in the study of the Antichrist, Revelation 7, uh, Daniel 7 and 8 are very important. So it matches what we're seeing here in chapter 13, the description of this person who here is described as a beast. Um, matches the description given in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. So God is showing us the characteristics of this man and the characteristics of his government. Um, and we see certainly, uh, it's certainly recognizable. You know, it's not, it's not so fantastic that such a thing could be possible in the days that we're living in. That a government like this and a leader like this could actually you know, be on the earth, maybe here right now, and setting things up behind the scenes so that around the time that we're departing, he's ready to put everything into place. Now, so let's just read. We're just going to read again the few opening verses of chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and we've looked at those seven heads. The, the seven heads of this beast um, are elsewhere in the Bible called seven mountains. They represent seven kingdoms. And we went back through from the beginning of the Bible and showed you those seven kingdoms, beginning with the kingdom of Nimrod uh, all the way up through the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. So those seven world kingdoms, those world powers, 
um, from the beginning of the Bible until the present day, represented here by those seven heads. And then, on these uh, seven heads, or out of these seven heads, are ten horns. Now, in the Scriptures, horns um, are said to represent kings. And uh, we see that over in Revelation 17. Just go over there real quick. Look at 17.12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. All right. Uh, now in Daniel chapter, I mean in Revelation chapter seventeen, the horns are not crowned, because as it says in verse number twelve, because this same beast is described in chapter seventeen, but without the crowns. If you'll notice back in seventeen three, uh, chapter seventeen is mostly about a woman that's riding upon this beast. The woman in chapter seventeen, when we get there, we'll study her, but. She represents a city and a religion that's centered in a city that has had tremendous influence for hundreds of years over the kings of the earth. And she is supported by and helped along by this beast. And the beast is, in verse 3, it says, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, in chapter 13, those seven heads and ten horns have crowns. But here in chapter 17, the beast is not crowned. Uh, it says um, in verse number 12 of 17, it says, The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. So those horns are kings. But uh, in chapter 17, even though 17 is obviously later than chapter 13, this in chapter 17 is actually a glimpse back because this woman did not come into existence in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation. This is actually a woman that has been present on the earth uh, even during the period of this church age. So she's been, she's been getting power and influence and support by the, from the spirit of that beast long before you and I were born. So in chapter 17, it's kind of like a look backwards in history at this beast and the woman that he carries. But in chapter 13, this beast is crowned. You'll see in uh, chapter 13, it says, and upon his horns, ten crowns. So chapter 13 is specifically the Antichrist uh, in the tribulation. And um, these ten horns represent ten kings. And here they are in power. They have crowns, so they have their kingdoms. So these are kings that have, um, that have some kind of influence and power on the earth. And we're going to come back to that in a second because we're going to show you um, perhaps who one of these kings um, represents. But um, the Antichrist, as we were looking at last Wednesday night, we went back and looked at Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, and we... Um, I pointed out to you here in, Ch in Revelation 13:2 that the beast which I saw, verse 2, was like unto a leopard. Like unto a leopard. And his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. Back in Daniel chapter 8, we saw those same four beasts described. Uh, only in reverse order. Um, there was a lion, a bear, and a leopard. 
And in Daniel chapter 8, those beasts in Daniel chapter 8 represented um, three of those world kingdoms that um, took power on the earth um, with the fall of Israel in the Old Testament, beginning with Babylon, uh, Babylon being the lion, uh, Media Persia being the bear, and the kingdom of Greece being the leopard. And so notice that the Antichrist is primarily the leopard. It's just the feet are the feet of the bear and the mouth is the mouth of a lion. But the Antichrist has the body of a leopard, which just indicates that the prevailing characteristic, if the Antichrist that's coming, if, he, if his characteristics are rooted in all of these previous world kingdoms, the prevailing characteristic, is that which comes from the leopard, which was the kingdom of Greece. And when we back to Daniel chapter 8, which I guess we better do just for a second, if you would, go back there with me. Daniel chapter um, 8. Um, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4 is where we saw the lion in verse 4. Look down in verse 5, you see the bear. Verse number 6, the leopard. So there's the first kingdom, which was Babylon in the days of Daniel. Daniel who's writing this. The kingdom that first conquered the world in Daniel's day was the kingdom of Babylon. So that represents the lion. The second one that would come... Uh, and this one came even while Daniel was still alive, was the kingdom of Media and Persia, that represented, represented by the bear. And then the third, which came after the death of Daniel, it was a few hundred years in the future after his death, was the kingdom of Greece. And in Daniel chapter 7, it's represented by a leopard. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse number 7, was the kingdom that would come after the kingdom of Greece, which was, the, which was the Roman Empire, and that's represented by the fourth beast in verse number 7, which is described as being dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Look down at the end of verse number 7, and it had ten horns. So there's definitely a connection there between the beast of Daniel chapter 7 and the beast of, Daniel, of Revelation chapter 13. Now if you'll just turn over to... Um, Chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, this was a vision that Daniel had that came two years later than the vision in Daniel chapter 7. And, what God, and God in Daniel chapter 8 is simply focusing in almost like um, a close-up of one of those kingdoms in particular. And here they're not described as a lion or a bear or a leopard. But God in chapter 8 is just allowing Daniel to focus in on one kingdom out of those four in particular. And in Daniel chapter 8, God focuses in on the kingdom of Greece. And um, it's curious to me why God would devote an entire chapter in the Bible to a kingdom that you know rose and then fell and... Uh, doesn't seem like it would, you know, have that much significance, you know, in relationship to the Antichrist. But it turns out that this has a lot of significance. 
Um, because remember that third kingdom was the leopard and the primary characteristic of the, of the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 13 is something related to that kingdom of Greece. Well, like we said last time, Alexander himself reigned over the world for a very short period of time. He conquered the Medes and the Persians very, very quickly. Um, and uh, his kingdom stretched all the way from Macedonia, where present-day Greece would be, all the way to India, down through Syria, and into Egypt. That's a huge chunk of real estate. And, uh, but once he had conquered all of that, at a very young age, at around the age of 33, he died suddenly, without leaving an heir, and uh, without ever really getting a chance to rule over this kingdom that he had just conquered. So he didn't himself get a chance to have much personal influence in all of this territory that had been conquered by his army. But after his death, that big piece of real estate was divided up into four, four pieces. And, and his generals, it took a few years, but his generals, four of his generals fought over it. And four of them ended up prevailing. One took the area that would be today, would be Egypt. Another took the area that would be Syria today, Iraq, that area. Another king or general took the land that was further to the east, which would be Iran and India. And then another one took Turkey and Macedonia, that area. And so it seems like, okay, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, God, the rest of the book of Daniel, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, and not 12, but 8, 9, 10, and 11. So four chapters in the book of Daniel. God zeroes in, gives us a close-up of what happened after the death of Alexander. Why should that be important to us? Because those kingdoms were eventually conquered by Rome, and they don't exist anymore. The Roman Empire was that fourth dreadful beast uh, whose influence continues until the, today and continues right into the tribulation. Why the emphasis... Why the emphasis on that third kingdom, Greece? Well, it wasn't so much because of Alexander, and it wasn't so much because of Greece itself, but it was because of one, what happened in one part of that kingdom. Because the rest of the book of Daniel focuses in on one of those four divisions of Alexander's empire. Very little is said about the part that was Egypt. Nothing is said about the part of Alexander's empire that was Macedonia and Turkey. Nothing is said about the part farther to the east that would be today's, where today's Iran and India are. But the rest of the book of Daniel, or at least chapter 10 and 11, focus in on a one who in the, in the rest of the book of Daniel is called the king of the north. And it was... It, were, it was those kings who ruled that one-fourth of Alexander's old empire, which today would be Syria and Iraq, that area. And, uh, in fact, Daniel chapter 11 describes the wars that went on for the next several hundred years after the death of Daniel. There was a continual warfare in that part of the world between the, the descendants of that general that took Syria 
and the descendants of that general that took Egypt. Their descendants became kings. They ruled over that part of the world for several hundreds of years. And the kings over Egypt were called the Ptolemies, and the kings over Syria were called the... I don't remember what their name was. I can't remember. Who they were doesn't matter. But, but for some reason, the prophet Daniel focuses in on these battles that went back and forth for several hundred years between the king of the south, which was the king, the Ptolemy kings over Egypt, and the king of the north, which was, were the kings in Syria. Why was this an issue? Because sitting smack dab between Egypt and Syria is what? The land of Israel. So as the king of the north, those kings that ruled over Syria, and the kings of the south, those kings that ruled over Egypt, fought back and forth, the prize was always Israel. And so sometimes the king of the north possessed Israel. Sometimes the king of the south, the kings of the south would push back and conquer that part of the world and Egypt would rule over Israel. These are this is during that 400 years between the days of Daniel and the time of Jesus Christ. Over that 400 that they call it the 400 silent years because there are no scriptures given during that time. There were no prophets of God giving, given during that time. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And between Malachi and Matthew is about 400 years. So during that 400 years, we don't have a biblical record of what went on historically, but we have Daniel's prophecies concerning what would go on. And so in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel foresaw, he he saw into that period, and Daniel actually described battles, wars that would go on back and forth in Daniel chapter 11 between the king of the north and the king of the south. And it's not our purpose here. It would be really boring for us to go in and like look at the historical records and show you how they match up with Daniel's prophecies. But I can tell you this, and by now you know this, that every prophecy in this Bible has either already come true or is going to come true. And in Daniel chapter 11, the prophecies, which were not thousands, they were concerning things not thousands of years ahead, but some, in some cases only 100 or 200 years ahead, all came true exactly like Daniel describes them. You can read in Daniel chapter 11 about all this intrigue and all these wars that went back and forth. But then suddenly, in Daniel chapter 11, it's like the Bible begins to describe a king who cannot be the, the king of the north, who was the, the king of Syria at that time, still connected to the Greek empire. This is still the, the remnant of Alexander's empire. That king of the north, which sometimes Daniel is referring to a literal king, an actual king that ruled over Syria, and then sometimes he's referring, he's calling him that king over Syria, but it cannot be a man. It has to, he's, he's, he's more than a man. For example, um, look in Daniel chapter, well, let's go to Daniel chapter 8, for example. It says um, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat 
In Daniel chapter 8, Greece is, co- is compared to a goat. In Daniel chapter 7, Greece is compared to a leopard. And the reason, the, it's, the reason God uses a goat here is only because of the swiftness of Alexander's attack against Persia. Because Alexander came in with such um, a ferocious, and, and the way that he attacked from the west was so speedy that it overwhelmed the Persians and they were conquered very quickly. And, uh, and so here it says, the rough goat, verse 21, is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Horns are always representative of kings. By the way, have you ever seen pictures in like ancient times of their kings? Do you ever remember the kind of headgear that they wore? It would normally be a horn in the front. And today, that's been modernized, I mean in more modern times, is the, the crowns, those points on a crown represent horns. I mean, a crown normally has those little, you know, peaks on it that a king would wear. That's really just uh, and the evolution of the way the kings normally had their headgear. In the beginning, like a bull, like the horn on a bull, they would wear that horn as a symbol of their authority and their power. So in the scriptures, horns just represent kings. So the great horn on that goat represents the first king, which was Alexander. Verse 22, now that being broken, he died quickly, Whereas four stood up for it, so after his death, four kingdoms stood up out of that nation, but not in his power. Alexander didn't bequeath anything to them. He had no heir and he made no plans. He died suddenly and these guys had to fight among themselves and eventually they divided the kingdom into four. But verse 23, now watch this. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full... A king of fierce countenance, still connected to Greece. This is still a remnant of that Greek empire. This is still a remnant of that... This is the characteristics of that leopard. A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Do you remember Revelation chapter 13? It said the devil himself, the dragon, gives... That beast that looks like it has the body of a leopard gives that beast its power. So this is a king of... uh, This is a strange king. This is not just a man. This is not just that literal descendant of... um, Oh, I remember their names. The Seleucid. They're the first king or the first general that took over after... Over that part of Alexander's empire, which is Syria, was Seleucid. And his descendants for the most part, took his name. Uh, One did not. It was the eighth one descended from him, which was Antioch Epiphanes, whose whose life is described in the early part of uh, Daniel chapter 8. But anyway, verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. You know who that would be. Who would the mighty and the holy people be? The church? No. Israel. All right, so he, his, his power and influence is going to be aimed at Israel. As in history, it always was between the king that reigned over Syria and the king that reigned over Egypt. We're talking about the years, you know, those last 400 years B.C., before Jesus Christ. Those last 400 years before Jesus Christ was born. That 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Alright? It says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper. Anybody know what craft, when it speaks of craft in the Bible, what kind of craft it's talking about? Sorcery. Witchcraft. Alright? Sorcery. So there's going to be some satanic power here. He's going to cause craft to prosper. And in his hand, he shall magnify himself in his heart. It's like, you know, the Antichrist, the son of perdition in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to exalt himself, going to consider himself to be God. So this one exalts himself, magnifies himself in his heart by peace. He's going to come in peaceably like that, um, that first rider in Revelation chapter 6. The, the first horse, the white horse, and the rider on that horse who has a bow but with no arrows. So he comes in peaceably. He comes in perhaps with the threat of war. He comes in by taking control by his laws. Um, uh, just like our government right now is slowly robbing you know, our, us of liberties, slowly behind the scenes through executive orders and treaties and all kinds of things, little by little, uh, our sovereignty has been given away and our liberties are being given away, taken away. And so it will, the Antichrist will come in, not with an army. He doesn't conquer the world by force. He conquers the world by laws, by gaining the influence over populations through his laws, through legislatures, through governments and things like that. And so by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince, capital P, of princes. Now, there is no earthly ruler, you know, that came out of Syria or Egypt in those days that stood up against Jesus Christ. But this one will in the tribulation. His, his great enemy will be the Lord himself. But he shall be broken without hand. So, so in other words, here in Daniel chapter 8, why the focus on that third kingdom? Why take us back and examine the remnants of that Greek empire, if it doesn't have something to do with the Antichrist that rises in the tribulation. There's some connection. But in particular, not, not just the kingdom of Greece in general, but one of those four parts, the king of the north, and, uh, which was Syria. All right? If you go over to Daniel chapter 11, you'll see once again a focus on the king of the north. And in this case, it doesn't mean Russia, it doesn't mean the North Pole, it's talking about that king which was directly north of Israel, and the king that was directly south of Israel. South of Israel, the Jews had Egypt as their enemy. North of Israel, they had Syria as their enemy. Uh, even today, that's still the case. All right, so those two enemies have lasted until this day. Uh, in Daniel chapter 11, we have... Um, uh, we can't read this whole thing here, but if you'll notice, I'll just give you this, and you can go back and check it out on your own just to see that it's so. But uh, from Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, down through verse 30 uh, or 29, at least, maybe a little bit further, this whole first 29 or 30 verses are talking about wars that took place during that 400 silent years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the time of Jesus Christ. These can all be confirmed and have been confirmed by historians. One uh, historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus, has one of his great works. He lived around the time of the apostles 
and he wrote great work called The History of the Wars of the Jews, in which he goes back and describes all these great wars of even the kings in the Old Testament. Now, he was not a believer. He was just an historian. And, uh, but he describes the, many of those wars that took place during those 400 years before Jesus Christ. In fact, there are two books. They're apocryphal books. You know, the books of the apocrypha meaning... They're not inspired of God, but they, you know, they claim to be books of the Bible. We don't have them in the King James Bible, um, but they are in some versions of the Bible. They're in the Catholic Bible. You know, like in a Catholic Bible, they'll have books that uh, you probably have never heard of. Bell and the Dragon, um, The Shepherd of Hermes, um, and some other you know, spurious books. They're not authentic. They, they weren't inspired of God. But two of those apocryphal books although not inspired of God, are still historically accurate. And those were the books of First and Second Maccabees. And um, they don't claim to be inspired of God. They're not Scripture in that sense. But like many books that are at least um, you know, historically true, First and Second Maccabees were historically true. And First and, Me- First and Second Maccabees are descri- describes the battles that are written, are prophesied here in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel was prophesying them. They were in the future several hundred years. The book of First and Second Maccabees actually describes them because that, th- those books were written during the time of those battles. Those battles are given, are described here in Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through um, 30. We might even go down to actually verse number 34. But... When you get down to verse number 35, all of a sudden, just like in Daniel chapter 8, suddenly this king of the north transforms into somebody that cannot really be, it can't be talking about a human king. Whereas the first part of the chapter, Daniel is describing uh, wars in the future between human kings, the king of the north and the king of the south. But when you get down to verse number 35 and 36, prophetically, you're jumping over a couple of thousand years of history right into the tribulation. The Bible does that many times. Many times. The Bible in one verse is describing somebody who was alive at that time. And the very next verse, it's a description of somebody who would be alive hundreds or thousands of years in the future. That's why it's important when you read the Scriptures. Go slow. Rightly divide the word of truth. Because that happens here in Daniel chapter 11. Look down in verse number 35 of Daniel 11. It says, And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end. There's a clue. Because uh, certainly in the 400 years before Jesus Christ, that was not the time of the end. Right? There's no way that Daniel would have called that the time of the end. Uh, the time of the end uh, is the days that you and I are living in now, and especially the tribulation, which is dead ahead. So now, all of a sudden, the story in Daniel chapter 11 leaps over history and into the future. And notice the guy that it describes here. And the king shall do according to his will. So he's going to be a self-willed king, like the Antichrist. Disregarding the will of God, disregarding the word of God, doing his own will. The king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god 
sounds like the guy in Daniel chapter 8 that we read about, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. Okay, so now here's some kind of great indignation. Because remember, what would be the greatest indignation to God? Can you imagine? What would be the most indignant thing that some human could ever do against the Lord? Claiming to be God. (laughs) That's the greatest indignation. That's what the Antichrist will do. Imagine that. A man claiming to be God. And so here's somebody, a king, who's self-willed, who magnifies himself above every God until the indignation be accomplished, which is accomplished and then overthrown in the tribulation. It says, For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. That's why, as you'll see a little later, he's probably got some Jewish ancestry in him. Um, Nor the desire of women, which means he probably will be a homosexual. Nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above above all. But in his estate, his kingdom, shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them, we talked about that the last time, who the them are, he's going to call, in in fact, actually you should underline that because that was one of the things I was going to, was going to do tonight in the Bible study is we were going to discuss some, some kings in the Bible who are not really humans, kings that are, are going to reign on this earth, but they're not, they weren't born of women. And we'll see that. And he shall cause them to rule over many, uh, which now that I'm thinking of it goes exactly along with the study I intended to do tonight, which I haven't gotten to yet, and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. So this shows you that this this has stopped being the literal physical king of the north because this is some other kind of a king. And if the king of the south is coming against him and the king of the north is coming against him, then he's somewhere in the middle, right? Like one who would set himself up in the temple as God himself in Jerusalem. It says, uh, come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. He shall enter into the countries. And it goes on and on. Uh, Verse number 44, uh, tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away, to make away many. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none and none shall help him. All right. So. Some connection with one-fourth of that Greek empire, that empire of Alexander, some, some connection between that and the identity of the Antichrist. Go back to Revelation chapter 13, and let's see it again. He has the prevailing characteristic of this beast, this leader, is that he has the body of a leopard. That's the prevailing characteristic. Um, notice also something else about him. Oh, I know what I wanted to do before I get to that. So, so there's some connection with Syria. 
for not just Syria itself, because if you looked on a map today, Syria does not include Iraq, but in the days of that king that came after Alexander, his kingdom included present-day Syria and Iraq, which in ancient times, that kingdom had another name. Long before Alexander came on the scene, actually long before Babylon even came on the scene, there was another kingdom in that area that persecuted Israel, that actually swooped down at one point and took ten of the tribes of the Jews away into captivity. Does anybody remember what that kingdom was? Assyria, right? That kingdom, Assyria, was overthrown by Babylon. So before Babylon, there was a king of great power, a great hater of God, who came in and took away um, ten of the tribes into captivity in the days of Isaiah. Now, if you read Isaiah the prophet, that's the first major prophet that you find in your Bible. Isaiah was a prophet that lived during the reign of four kings in the Scriptures. Uh, Uzziah, uh, who was succeeded by Jotham, who was succeeded by Ahaz, who was succeeded by Hezekiah. That's a long time. That's about 49, 50 years of time right there. And Isaiah was a prophet from the days of Uzziah all the way to, I think, the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. So there's like 50... So Isaiah was alive for a long time. And Isaiah prophesied a long time. That, so And Isaiah, if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, I hope you have, you notice how, how much Isaiah has to say about the future. And while Isaiah was a prophet, during his time is when the, the king of Assyria came down, swooped down, and took away the ten tribes in the north. That happened while Isaiah was alive. And so Isaiah has a lot to say about Assyria. And, but Now remember, if there's a connection with the Antichrist and Syria, you'd expect that there might be some evidence of that in Isaiah, since Isaiah was alive when another nation, Assyria, uh, persecuted Israel. And I want to show you something in the book of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Now, you know how I said, and, and you know that sometimes it's hard to tell whether a prophet is speaking about a literal king or someone who's not really a man. For example, before we go to Isaiah 10, just look at Isaiah 14. This is probably a perfect example of that. Isaiah chapter 14, you look in verse number uh, 4, Isaiah 14, 4. God tells Isaiah, Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Now, during Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria took the ten tribes in the north away into captivity, but during Isaiah's lifetime, uh, Assyria was also conquered. Assyria fell uh, to the Babylonians. So Isaiah was alive to see that. He was actually alive, and he writes about it. He was actually alive to see Assyria persecute Israel and Babylon persecute Israel. So in the book of Isaiah... He writes against, God gives him prophecies against the king of Babylon and against the king of Assyria. 
But sometimes Isaiah is not talking about that real human being king. Sometimes he's speaking about an angel or even Satan himself. Look at this. In verse number 4, it looks like Isaiah is speaking about the human king in Babylon. But when you read down through here, look at, by the time you get down to, look at verse 9, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. Is he talking about the human king of Babylon or someone else? Um, It stirreth up the dead for thee. Um, Verse 10, all they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Is this the human king or someone else? Look at verse number 12, and you find out who he really is speaking to. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? So, Isaiah the prophet is writing to the king, or he's, he's given a prophecy against the king of Babylon, but who is this prophecy really concerning? It's not against the human king, it's against Satan himself. Um, keep your finger there, and I'll show you another example of that. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at Ezekiel 28 and verse number 12. Ezekiel 28, 12. <clears throat> Son of man... That's Ezekiel, God speaking to him. Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Okay. Say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. What? When was the king of Tyrus ever in the garden of Eden? So Ezekiel is writing against a king but this, he's not, this is not actually the Spirit of God addressing that human king, but probably the satanic influence behind that king. Remember how one time Jesus looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan? He's looking at Peter, but he's actually addressing Satan himself, who at that moment was actually working in Peter and through Peter. So sometimes in the Old Testament, that's the way the prophets spoke. You don't know if they're talking to a real guy, or the devil himself. And they would call, the devil himself would call him the king of Babylon, the king of Tyrus. Well, in the book of Isaiah, that happens a lot. Isaiah speaks about the king of Assyria. But most of the time, he is not talking about a real human being. And you're going to find out, well, it's just fun to see it, but let's just go back and look at it. Let's go back and look at the Assyrian. Now, remember... The king of the north in the book of Daniel would have been an Assyrian. And now, the Assyrian in the days of Isaiah, Isaiah was hundreds of years before Daniel, but notice what Isaiah says in verse number 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and God did, I mean, the literal king of Assyria, God stirred him up to go down and take Israel into captivity. Why? God was angry with Israel. God used a human king as his instrument to go and punish his nation, his people. And God did that. God took them away into captivity. So, verse 6, I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge. Uh, Skip down to verse number 10. As... um, 
uh, Isaiah 10. Uh, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed His whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. So God is prophesying here, when I'm done with everything I need to do with Jerusalem, I'm going to punish the Assyrian. Is this a human king in Assyria? Or is God doing like he did when Jesus spoke to Peter and when Isaiah spoke to the king of Babylon and when Ezekiel spoke to the king of Tyrus? Is he actually addressing Satan himself? Uh, Look down in... um, Let's skip over to chapter... uh, While we're here in Isaiah chapter 10, go down to verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob. Verse 22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of the land. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease. There's the indignation again. Now, this is either the king of Assyria, a human being, or this is actually Isaiah speaking about the future, about the Antichrist, who would come against Israel in a time, and the indignation is mentioned here, and a a consumption, and a remnant, verse 20, a remnant of Israel. Verse 21, a remnant of Israel. The indignation is very important. Look over in Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26. Look at verse 20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, when the Antichrist begins to threaten Israel and that that abomination is revealed in Jerusalem when he sets himself up as a god. And um, we looked at it in Zechariah where two-thirds of Israel decide to stay in the land and under the protection of the Antichrist. But a third of them, God said, when you see that abomination, when you see him set up and set himself up as a god in Jerusalem, you flee into the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12. Some of them flee into the wilderness and they're protected there and God shelters them there and God saves them there. One third of Israel gets saved in the tribulation. It says, verse 20, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. All right, so it's tribulation. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and um, shall no more cover her slain. In that day, that day when Israel is hidden in the wilderness until the indignation is finished and God comes out, God shall come out of his place, heaven, 
to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's tribulation. And at that time, verse 1 of 20, chapter 27, in that day the Lord with His sore and great and strong sword. All right. Remember when Jesus Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19? There's a sword, a two-edged sword that goes out of His mouth. He's coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth in that day with his great and terrible sword, the sword of his words. He doesn't need a literal sword of steel. Just with his words, it's a sword that cuts in pieces. And there's a two-edged sword that goes out of the Lord's mouth in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes from heaven. And here it says, with his great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Revelation 12, Revelation 13. Uh, and we don't have time here, but if we just read down a little bit further, down through these verses in chapter 27, just skip down uh, verse 12. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. The Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement in a Jubilee year, a great trumpet was blown to announce Israel's deliverance and freedom. The great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So there again, there's something about Assyria connected to the tribulation, connected to the serpent. Um, go over to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verse number 27. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verse number 27. Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation. His tongue is a devouring fire, and his breath is an overflowing stream shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of vanity, and there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. Uh, let's skip down, verse 30. And the Lord shall cause His glorious voice to be heard, and shall show the lighting down of His arm with the indignation of His anger and with the flame of a devouring fire. Now, none of these things have actually ever happened in history. God has never done this from heaven. God Himself has come down with fire and vengeance. Does that sound like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Where Jesus Christ comes with fire and vengeance and anger, a sword, and so on and so forth. It says, and, of, and His voice. You know what the voice, the voice of God. It says, um, with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. Verse 31, for through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. Now listen, no king of Assyria was ever conquered by fire from heaven and the voice of God. I mean, this is a, this is a judgment that takes place in the tribulation. Why does God, and it's a description of the Antichrist, why does God describe the Antichrist as an Assyrian? Why in Revelation chapter 13 does he have the body of a leopard, which was out of Assyria? Uh, one more. Go to the book of Micah. Micah. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, you know, like around Christmas time, when, um, you know, uh, when people are talking about the birth of Christ and Bethlehem, 
Anybody remember a famous verse from Micah chapter 5 concerning Bethlehem? All right, this one's familiar. Look in Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. <clears throat> Micah chapter 5. Well, let's read verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, everybody knows that's a prophecy concerning, I mean, it was written uh, by Micah, um, during the days, by the way, of, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, you don't have to, but in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. They lived during the period of the same kings. So, Isaiah and Micah are alive at the same time prophesying. Um, so, you have Isaiah speaking about the Assyrian. And he wasn't talking about the king of Assyria. He was talking about a world ruler at the end that would be conquered by the Lord from heaven with fire and judgment. Well, look at what Micah says, who's living at the same time that Isaiah was living. Look at, let's just read a little further. All right, if verse number two, we agree that verse number two is speaking about Jesus Christ. Out of Bethlehem comes this one whose goings forth are, have been from of old, from everlasting. All right, that's the Lord. All right, but now watch, just read three more verses. Therefore, Will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth? Ah. You ever, ever see a description of Israel bringing forth like a nation born in a day? Um, Revelation chapter 12 talked about a woman travailing in birth. Right? And so here is, uh, Then the remnant mm, of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man, which man? The one that comes out of Bethlehem. The one that came out of Bethlehem shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. Whoa! The one that came out of Bethlehem is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Assyrian comes into the land of Israel, the Antichrist, threatening those people, persecuting those people, who will be their peace and their salvation? That man from Bethlehem. The Savior comes to rescue them in the day when the Assyrian, with the sword and the land of Nimrod, wow, what a connection, back to the very first Antichrist, Nimrod in the Old Testament, in the entrances thereof, thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. So there is some mysterious connection between the Antichrist and the country of Syria. Um, I guess I wanted to do more, but we don't have time tonight. Um, wanted to throw you a curveball tonight and show you perhaps who that guy might be. 
there was actually someone in the scriptures that is a that who was alive during the time of Jesus Christ who may be um, very closely connected to the Antichrist of the tribulation. There are only two men in the Bible called the son of perdition. The Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Judas Iscariot in John chapter 17. Those are the only two men in the Bible called the son of perdition. And we'll probably, we need to save this, I guess, for next Wednesday night. But there are some very, very strange things that are said about Judas Iscariot. He's the only man in the Bible that was called the devil. He's the only man in the Bible called the son of perdition other than the Antichrist himself. Judas Iscariot is the only man in the Bible who, when he died, did not go to heaven or hell. He died and he went somewhere else. The Bible says he went to his own place. Neither heaven nor hell. The Bible says that Judas Iscariot, the devil entered into him. He's the one that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something so strange about Judas Iscariot. Was he just some twisted individual who just didn't understand who Jesus really was? He was more than just a backslidden believer. He was more than just an unsaved disciple. He was not saved. John chapter 17 says Jesus was referring to his disciples and he said, None of them is lost, save the son of perdition. So he was never saved. He was a lost man. The Bible says he was the devil. The devil entered into him in that upper room. And when he died, he didn't go to heaven or hell. He went to his own place. What other place is there if it's not heaven or hell? There's no purgatory in the Bible. But there is a place mentioned in the book of Revelation. A bottomless pit that has a king in it. And the Bible says the beast in Revelation chapter 13 comes up out of the bottomless pit. Revelation chapter um, 11 and verse number 7 says the beast, in chapter 13, actually comes up out of the bottomless pit. And the bottomless pit has an angel, a spirit over it, who is called a king. So there are some weird connections here. And um, we'll have to explore that a little bit uh, next Wednesday night. But... Um, I guess the basic gist of this is is just showing you the importance of um, while perhaps most people's focus when it comes to the Antichrist, most people, their focus is on Rome, but really the focus ought to be on Syria. The focus is on the Middle East and someone who will come to power um, either out of the country of Syria or he'll be of Syrian extraction. So uh, the, the Bible is just giving us clues as to who that great man of sin will actually be. All right, we'll uh, do the rest of this next Wednesday night then, okay? All right, thank you for uh, your attention tonight. Hope it's, uh, hope it's helpful. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you tonight for the Scriptures.